Amen. So James concludes his letter here really with two subjects. Here in verses 12, 18 is the matter of prayer. And then in verses 19 and 20, we find him wrapping up the letter with a a command about pursuing those who would wander, those who would wander away from the faith, the truth. Both are concerned with life in the church community. That's really what dominates this last small section of James's letter, life in the community. And here in verses 12 through 18, James sets forth prayer as the community response to suffering. In the verses immediately before this, let me remind you, James instructs us to be patient until the coming of the Lord, to remain steadfast like the prophets and like Job, who are examples of suffering and patience. And so the key to remaining steadfast then in suffering as a community of faith, as the people of God, is prayer. Prayer is the means of enduring suffering together. So this morning, I want us to look at four ways to pursue prayer. James gives us four ways to pursue prayer. First of all, we are to avoid oaths. We are to avoid oaths. Verse 12, above all my brothers, and here's that marker again that James is beginning, a new paragraph, a new subject. Above all my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other, or by any other oath. And when James says do not swear, he doesn't mean cussing, using profanity. The Bible does command us not to do that, but it's not what James is talking about here. He's not talking about foul language. He's talking about taking an oath or making a vow. Jesus says almost the exact same thing with almost the exact same words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 through 37. James is almost quoting Jesus here. Swearing an oath reinforced the truth of something said. For example, this is true as God is my witness. Or today we, we swear in court an oath of truthfulness. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? That's an oath. We sign affidavits. Sometimes we carelessly say, I swear to God. James says, instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. You see, swearing an oath also might bind someone to a future course of action. For example, so help me God, I'll do such and such. And James says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Now, I think there are two reasons okay, for this command that are pretty clear. First of all, as a Christian, the integrity of your life and speech should be such that your yes and your no are trustworthy by themselves. 
The people in your lives, whether you work with them or serve alongside of them or pursue life and hobbies with them or family members, they ought to know that they can depend on your word, that there's no duplicity in your speech. It's what James has been talking about in this entire letter, isn't it? That we be whole, that there be integrity, that there not be these divisions and these fractures, that we don't say one thing and do another. Again, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I think also James is getting at taking oaths and swearing oaths flippantly or carelessly. Throughout Scripture, we could look at them, and I'm not going to open up all the examples. We can see where God takes oaths seriously. God takes oaths seriously. So binding yourself by an oath and then failing to keep it can bring condemnation. Now, James isn't forbidding taking any oaths at all. He's not saying you can't make any kind of promise or agreement, signing a contract. If we were to say that, there'd be a real problem with getting married because getting married requires taking vows, commitment, a covenant commitment to a husband or a wife. So that would be very problematic. James isn't prohibiting oaths in court to give truthful testimony. He's not prohibiting wedding vows. He's not forbidding signing an affidavit of citizenship or something like that. But why add this command then here in this context? What kind of oaths is he talking about? Well, by saying above all, that's how he begins here in verse 12, but above all, my brothers, James is obviously highlighting the command. He's giving us a sign that he's beginning to wrap up the letter, but he's also highlighting this command, do not swear oaths. In other words, most importantly, which makes it kind of a bottom-line commandment. And this verse, verse 12, really could stand by itself as a disconnected instruction. Sometimes in closing New Testament letters, if you go back and you look at just the closings of the letters, how the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter who wrap up their letters, we find very often a variety of topics covered almost like a punch list. Don't forget to do this. Make sure you do this. Tell such and such I said hello. Greet the household of such and such. Those kinds of things, almost like a boom, 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 grocery list. Let me wrap this thing up and just give you some reminders and some closing remarks. And it could be in a sense that this is what James is doing here. He's, he's suddenly just talking about oaths. The problem is, or the difficulty with that, is that it's hard to see this as an isolated command when in verse 10, back up in verse 10, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, and then in the verse after this, in verse 13, he says, is anyone among you suffering? There is also this marker, my brothers, which is without there being another my brothers in verse 13, it would seem that James is including these things together. He says my brothers again 
in uh, verse 19. So this would seem in James's mind to be a, a set of instructions that belong together, verses 12 through 18. So because of the flow of thought then, I think these believers, this is what I think is going on behind James' instruction to not swear oaths. I think these believers were being tempted to respond to suffering by swearing oaths in some way or another. To swear oaths in ways that would compromise their integrity. Maybe they were taking oaths in an effort to ensure their safety or their well-being in a time of persecution. But whatever they were, they were oaths that maybe they didn't intend to keep. They were saying, yeah, I'll agree to that, to avoid this cost, this suffering, whatever it might be, but I'm really not going to violate what God has told me to do or told me not to do, even though I've taken that oath. And James is saying, don't swear those oaths. Don't take those kinds of oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And if your yes means suffering for it, so be it. Or if your no means suffering for it, so be it. Thus, let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you might not fall under condemnation. So that's what I would understand here as a way of beginning to talk about prayer then is avoid oaths. That is not the way God would have us as a community of faith endure suffering. It would not be by taking oaths that somehow are bringing us some kind of escape or, or sheltering us from the suffering that we are facing to whatever degree that suffering is. So first of all, avoid oaths. Number two, seek intercession. Seek intercession. Pursue prayer by seeking intercession. So if one of us is suffering, don't take an oath. If one of us is cheerful, don't make a vow. Instead, is anyone among you suffering? Let him what? Pray. Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, that is, full of hope, full of courage, let him sing praise? Our general, ongoing response to life's circumstances should be Godward. They should be Godward. Praying in times of need, asking God for help, turning to him first, and singing praise when we are well, when things are good. And life, most of the time, really is a mix, isn't it? It's a mix of these things. There's always hardships going on, and there are always immense blessings that we can point to and be grateful for. We can be grateful for the hardships, too, knowing that God is using them to refine our faith. But James is acknowledging that there are going to be times when you're suffering, and when he says, is anyone among you suffering? Well, that's a rhetorical question, right? Everyone's like, oh, well, that's me. Is anyone cheerful, full of courage? Got to be some of us going, yeah, that's me too. As Ephesians 6 verse 18 says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. James is basically saying the same thing. Suffering, let him pray. Full of cheer or courage, let him sing praise. Especially seek intercession in times of severe suffering. Verse 14, is anyone among you sick? This word sick literally is the word weak. We get our our English word anesthesia from this word. It means to be weak or powerless, vulnerable. It can refer to a spiritual state of vulnerability. To be weak can mean to be undermined in your moral courage, struggling with sin, falling into temptation, the word can, talk, can speak to that. Most of the time, it simply means physical illness or disease. Here, James has in mind someone who's in bed because they are debilitated. This is someone who's invalid because of illness. If any of you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. See, what is being pictured is that the elders are called for to come to this person because this person can't get out of bed. And they are to pray over them. Again, what's pictured is someone who's, who's bedridden and the elders are praying over them, standing over them and praying over them. So let him call, if any of you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. These are those who are serving in the office of elder, the leadership in the church. Why? Because they should be men of prayer. They should be spiritual men. This doesn't mean the elders should only pray over someone who's bedridden now, but that the illness is severe. That's what, that's what James is picturing here. There are other severe illnesses that should be prayed over by the elders. I do think James means, you know, don't call the elders every time you get a cold or a headache, please. Okay. He's saying, don't do that, but this is for severe suffering, severe illness. Call the elders for prayer. Now, verses 14 and 15 present us with a number of challenges, okay, when it comes to understanding the elders praying over the sick person. There is this anointing with oil. What does James mean by that? What about the prayer of faith? And what is the connection to sin? If he's restored, his health is restored, then what is that, this issue, how is this connected to his sins being forgiven? Well, verse 14 says, they are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Again, why? And is this something we should continue to do? Well, some think that the oil was used as a medication. And oil was used sometimes in the ancient world as a topical medicine, a balm we see this, for example, in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, where the Samaritan in verse 34 of Luke 10 helps the victim, the Jewish man who's been waylaid by robbers and left in a ditch to die. The Samaritan uses oil and wine 
for the man's wounds, by pouring it on his wounds. If this is what James means, he's saying that the elders ought to apply both spiritual resources, prayer, and natural God-given resources, medicine, to the sick person. Now, I hope that the problem with that is very apparent to you, and that is that while we believe that God intends for us to make the greatest use of medical discoveries, medical technology, medical advances, we do not hold to this idea that true faith will ignore those things and not take advantage of those things. Those are God's good gifts to the human race, his what we might call common grace. Okay, We advocate taking advantage of medical advances, right? But even though we do that, those who should practice that medicine probably ought not be the elders. That should probably be doctors, not the elders of your local church. I mean, seriously, if you need an ibuprofen and you call the elders, we'll find a way to get you one, okay? But if you call me and you say, my son just fell out of a tree and broke his arm, can you call the elders over to our house and pray for him and heal him up with some oil? I'm probably going to say, you know what? I'll meet you at the ER. I will, I will pray for your son, and I will be the first to sign his cast. And I will sign it with, pride goes before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Or maybe he breaks all my bones. Isaiah 38, 13. Pastor Sean, because that's the kind of pastor I am. Okay. No, look, the, this person that the elders are praying over, this is someone who's already getting medical attention. Maybe it's somebody who's beyond it. They've, they've gotten all the medical treatment that they can get, and they're still ill, they're still bedridden. This anointing with oil, then, is a symbolic act. That's what I would understand it to be. In the Bible, anointing with oil singled someone out. It recognized someone in a special way. The clearest examples in the Bible are when kings were anointed. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel calls David out among Jesse's sons, and anoints him with oil and identifies him as God's choice for king to replace Saul. The purpose for anointing a sick person with oil then is to say, you are marked out for God's special attention and care. We are praying for you. The church is praying for you. Lord, we are interceding for this person specifically. They are the focus of our concern and earnest prayers. I believe that's what James is calling, upon the, calling the elders to do. Now at Crossway, the elders do gather. They come around folks who need prayer. And we pray for you all on, in an ongoing way. In our elder meetings, we pray for you all. At our elder retreats, we pray for you all. We gather together specifically for those who are facing difficult challenges, especially health. 
illness, health challenges, illness, cancer, other diseases, other illnesses, sometimes debilitating anxieties or whatever it might be, the elders will come together and we will pray for a person. We have at times used oil for someone. We don't every time. It depends on how spur of the moment it is and whether we have any or don't have any. But we do practice that here. James calls this praying the prayer of faith. This act of the elders praying over someone who is bedridden, anointing them with oil, saying, you are the focus of God's special care. We're praying for you. This is called the prayer of faith or the prayer offered in faith. But again, what is, what is James talking about here? Is he talking about a specific prayer? Is he talking about a particular type of prayer? There's, a, there's praying and then there's a prayer of faith. Well, it's certain that this isn't a name it, claim it, so-called faith, as those who would preach a health and wealth gospel teach. There are those who would say, this is it. Here you go. Here's the key proof text that if you pray with enough faith, God will heal you. And if God doesn't heal you, something's wrong with your faith. Ever heard that? That's pretty common in the health and wealth gospel preaching. If you have enough faith, you can just claim it and you will be free. You'll be healed from all kinds of paralysis, diseases. James doesn't say anything about the person on the sickbed. He doesn't say anything about that person's faith, though. He's talking about those who are interceding for the person, first of all. There's never any guilt laid on the person who is sick. He's talking about the faith of the ones who are praying. And James simply means that this prayer, I don't, I don't understand James to be talking about a particular type of praying. He's simply saying that this prayer is asked in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. He is a double-minded man. James chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This is what James is saying. He's saying that of that the elders ought to not be double-minded men, and when they pray, they ought not to be praying, doubting, sitting in judgment on God's character, whether or not God is divided and fractured in himself, but that God has integrity, and that when you ask him and bring somebody who is ill before God in prayer, that you can count on God to hear your prayers and give his attention to that person. That's the prayer of faith the prayer offered in faith. So this is the way we're to pray all the time. In James chapter one, that's the way we ought to ask for wisdom. And that's what James is saying again here. He's re-emphasizing this kind of praying, is praying with faith. So the prayer of faith is set in contrast to a prayer of doubt or this fractured, divided prayer. Faith is not a formula for moving the lever of God's healing power. If I check off this box, if I jump through this hoop, God's going to heal. We've done it. 
No, faith is, this is praying with a conviction of God's integrity to hear and to answer. So the prayer of faith is prayer that springs from confidence in God's single-minded goodness towards those who ask him the Father of lights. Now, this prayer of faith, according to James, has two effects. First of all, it will save the one who is sick. And this word save is the same word that we use for salvation, redemption, being made right with God, being delivered out of judgment. It was used in certain contexts, though, of physical illness to speak of restoration, to being restored to health, to being saved or delivered from the illness. And it will save the one who is sick. And this phrase, the Lord will raise him up, pictures the sick person rising up out of bed. So there's a very tangible aspect to the result from this prayer of faith. Someone is made whole, they are saved, they're made well, and they are going to be able to get up out of bed. Now I, like probably many of you, have struggled with this verse and its implications for us as we face illness and disease and other kinds of physical, in particular physical brokenness, because it sounds like this is a promised result, doesn't it? I mean, this reads like if you pray and you pray in faith, not faith not faith that the Lord is going to heal this person, but if you pray in faith, confident, single-minded about God's integrity, God's listening, and God's attention, and God's love, that this will save the person, this will heal the person, and they will rise up out of bed. It sounds like a promised result. And yet we know from, number one, our own experience, that is not always true. In fact, it's not even often true. We also know from other passages of Scripture that praying for something does not guarantee that that is within the Lord's will and that the Lord is going to do that. We know that the Lord can do that. We don't hold that God doesn't work miraculously, that he doesn't heal people, that he doesn't intervene and override what we would otherwise call natural processes and heal people. And some people have testimonies of that. But the verse reads a certain way. How are we to understand what, what James is saying? Well, I think there, there are two answers. Okay. Number one James is speaking in very general principles. He's speaking in very broad, general principles that if we pray, God hears, God will respond. Very much like the way the book of Proverbs reads very often. For example, Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, hold on a second. Doesn't that read like a guarantee? That reads like a promise to me. 
if you do X, the result will be Y. But we know that doesn't always happen. And some of us can testify to that. I've seen that in people's lives, families, where mom and dad have faithfully trained and loved, not perfect, but faithfully trained and loved, and that child has gone their own way, has left the path, has rejected the faith, maybe walked away from the family. So how are we to understand it? And by the way, Proverbs is filled with verses just like that. Because it's speaking of very general principles and truths that if you follow God's path, there is blessing. If you do these things, if you, if you operate in the world with integrity, you will receive honor from people. That is generally true. It is also generally true that if you raise your children with proper discipline, respect, Bible teaching, undergirding their faith, they will understand the truth, come to faith, and at least, or at the very least, live moral lives. Generally, that is true, but there are exceptions, and we know that, and I believe that's what James, in one sense, James is speaking like that. The prayer of faith will save the person, deliver them out of the illness, they'll be able to to rise up out of bed. But I think there is something even more important underlying what James is getting at. And that is ultimate fulfillment. Ultimate fulfillment. And here's what I mean by that. If the Lord's return is taken into account, then it might be that the healing takes place now or it could be that the healing takes place at the Lord's return. Restoration will take place one way or another. Because you see, this is James's perspective, isn't it? If you put this verse and this teaching about the prayer of faith in the context of James, James's view of this life is one that is almost over. You need look no further back than verses 7 through 11 to see this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. From James's perspective, that's not something that's years off. Even though he doesn't know the date, that's something that from our perspective has taken a couple of millennia. But from the Lord's perspective of human history and life and your daily experience and my daily experience, the judge's hand is on the doorknob. Remember the image from above? And I believe that what James is getting at is that the certainty of restoration comes from an ultimate fulfillment. Whether that happens immediately as a result of the praying or whether the prayer of faith is meeting God's ultimate ends because God has promised to restore that person. We see this in other places. What about Romans 8.28? And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
How many times do we take that verse and try to apply it to this, some very tangible circumstances that we're in and say, okay, God, what good is coming out of this? And we try to, to figure that out and discern it. Okay, I think that this is the good God is doing. But called according to God's purpose means that ultimately you are transformed by his glory into a state of glory. And if that means in this life we must suffer great things so that God can bring us to a state of glory and refine our faith, something else James has made very clear here, then that is our good. That good is often an ultimate good, not something we realize right now in life. I believe James has that perspective. It's that theological perspective that stands behind James's words here when he says the prayer of faith will save him. This explains, I think, why James uses the word save here. And this phrase will raise him up, which is, by the way, the same word we use for resurrection. James is not talking merely about saving the soul out of judgment and the resurrection. James is saying there's a wholeness to this perspective that when God promises salvation, it is not just immaterial salvation of your soul. Your body is also saved. That's what the resurrection is about. Your body is brought up out of the grave and is brought to glory. You receive a new body. And we could chase this rabbit trail very far, okay? And I don't want to do that too far. But this is the perspective behind what James is saying here. So that there is a wholeness. That when God promises to save, he isn't just talking about saving your immaterial soul. He's talking about saving your body too. And at some point, those two will come together Right now, it's a divided experience, but God will bring it all about into one whole salvation. And I believe that's the perspective James is speaking from. And you say, well, how does the prayer of faith somehow bring about God's future? I mean, God's going to do that anyway, but we could say that about prayer and everything. Why would we pray about anything? You ever wrestle with that one? Why does it matter if I pray? If God's sovereign and God already has a plan, why do I pray? Because from the street perspective, the street level, our prayers affect God hears them and responds. How that matches up with the fact that God is sovereign and already had a plan, I don't know. I can't fathom it. But I see the two things being taught very clearly in Scripture. I accept both of them as true. And somehow they meet and come together, our prayers and God's sovereign purposes. And I believe that's, again, that's the perspective behind what James is saying. So now he continues then. The prayer of faith, first of all, will save the one who is sick. Secondly, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay, how does forgiveness of sin tie into all of this? Is James implying that physical illness is the result of sin or that God heals us physically when he does 
we also obtain forgiveness of sin? Well, first of all, you've got to notice the if, right? This is a conditional statement. If. James is not saying illness is always caused by sin. Or that illness must be caused by sin. The Bible's very clear this isn't the case. Job is a great example. Job afflicted in every way you could possibly think of. And yet over and over again, the book of Job says, Job was righteous. Job was righteous. Not righteous just in people's eyes. He was righteous in God's eyes. That's God's assessment of Job. And yet Job suffers. The book of Job is found in our Bibles. It was written to unravel the mystery of why the righteous suffer. So there is often suffering that's not tied to sin. Jesus also makes this same point to his disciples in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, when they pass by and see a man who has been blind from birth, and his disciples turn to him and ask, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? that he was born blind. See the connection they're making? It's interesting, Jesus doesn't say to them, oh, that's a complete fallacy, guys. Sin, illness is never connected to sin. But he does say, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So there was a greater purpose that wasn't tied to anything this guy's parents did or he himself But there are other places in the Bible when sickness and disease are shown to be the results of sin. Even in Mark chapter 2, remember the guys who lower the paralytic through the roof? They cut the hole in the roof, and Jesus is, everyone wants to hear him, so the house is so crowded, they can't get to Jesus. They want their buddy healed, so they cut the hole in the roof, and they drop him down in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has made you whole. And the scribes and the Pharisees and religious leaders are are sitting there and they're like, whoa, how how can he claim to be forgiving sin? This is only God can forgive sins. They don't say it out loud. They just think it. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And Jesus says, which is easier? And Jesus is making the point that if I have the authority to do the one, I have the authority to do the other and I'll prove it. Rise up, take your mat and walk. And the guy pops up, grabs his mat and goes, right? So, But Jesus doesn't say, oh, there's no connection to sin. Jesus sees the paralytic lying there, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Even Jesus was connecting for that man something about his sins and the need for forgiveness and physical healing or his state of paralysis. In a very general way, you could say we all suffer because of the fallenness of mankind, that we all experience disease and illness and deterioration and old age and everything in this life that we experience because of the fall and because of sin. But that doesn't account for everything the Bible says about the connection between illness, disease, and sin. Sometimes those things are very specifically lined up in Scripture. And I think, again, James's point is the undivided effect of faithful praying. Both sickness and sin are dealt with if they are associated in the person's experience. The elders who are praying for them may or may not even know about a connection or not connection. 
They were just praying for them. But the effect of it is that sins in the restoration of the purpose of the person is a whole restoration. Their sins will be forgiven. Now, this isn't, again, some sort of guarantee that every prayer will end in healing, but that prayer from faith is the means of enduring the suffering. That God hears, God cares, God may intervene, and God ultimately will intervene. God ultimately will restore and raise up. So, seek intercession. Now, you got to kind of, we had to get through all that just to get to what James is talking about, but the, the picture here is seek intercession. In severe illness, this is an example, call the elders, but seek intercession. Prayer is the, is the pursuit. Thirdly, confess sin, verse 16. Confess sin. Therefore, verse 16. This need for forgiveness, this need for wholeness, this need for healing means we need to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. To confess sin isn't just to apologize to each other when we wrong each other. We should do that. We should say, I'm sorry. I'm, I sinned against you. I mistreated you. That was, that was wrong of me. Will, will you forgive me? I've prayed to God, God's forgiven me. Will you forgive me? We need to do that. But this is, this is more than that. This is to acknowledge our moral struggles, our temptations, our failures to each other. It's the willingness to say to one another, I'm really broken here. I, I need your prayers. I need you to intervene for me. I'm really discouraged. I've really stumbled here. I'm struggling with this. I see the temptation looming. And I need help. See, to confess sins to one another is to pull them out into the light so that they're exposed so that they can't hide. Now think about this. Throughout this letter, James has warned us repeatedly against self Deception. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. You see, part of that self-deception is hiding the sin. It's convincing ourselves it isn't there, or it isn't that big a deal, or I can handle it. And never saying anything about it, while saying and speaking differently about our own spiritual condition than what we really know to be going on, we self-deceive ourselves, we deceive others. You can't be self-deceived and be confessing sin. Now, of course, there are right times, right places, right people to whom we should confess sin, where we should confess sins. But notice this isn't confession to the elders or a priest or some other mediator. This is to one another. This is fellow believers in the church. This is body life. This is the life of the church. We should be in this struggle against sin. There should be an atmosphere, if you will, in the church of an openness about dealing with sin, not trying to cover it up, not trying to be people without fault, but dealing with sin. 
It is a community project. We all need others interceding for us in our fight against sin. And James even connects this community praying, this fervent, steady, loving intercession for one another as a safeguard against sickness. Again, James is making this connection. And maybe if we were really to dig in, maybe a lot of our infirmities, our illnesses, our emotional collapses, whatever they may be, maybe they are tied to sin. Maybe things we don't even see in our own lives. Maybe if we really dug, we would find things like that. Things that need to be dealt with. Sin that needs to be confessed. (laughs) Forgiveness that needs to be received. Cleansing that needs to take place. Now, this is not confess a sin, avoid the virus. Okay. It is illness that is connected to sin is overcome by this kind of sharing and praying for each other, though. Fourthly, lastly, the fourth way to pursue prayer is to pray fervently. It's to pray fervently. Middle of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working or as it is being exercised. As Prayer is being practiced or pursued by a righteous person. It has great power. Now, who is the righteous person? Very few of us want to go, oh, that's me. But it is anyone who belongs to God. It's not a perfect person with no sin. The righteous person is the person who is dealing with sin according to God's provision for dealing with sin. How do we deal with sin? We confess it. We ask God for forgiveness. We receive his grace. We stand on his promises that we're justified before him, not because of our own righteousness, but because of Jesus' righteousness, which has been given to us. That makes you, if you're a Christian, that makes you a righteous person. And to doubt it is to doubt Jesus' power to justify you before God. You are the righteous person if you're a Christian. The righteous person is the person who has dealt with sin as God has provided forgiveness. Even if you don't feel like you're righteous. Again, the point here is not that because you're a Christian, every prayer you pray is going to bring the genie out of the lamp and grant you your wish. But that the effectiveness of your prayers doesn't rest on some special qualification, some elite status, or some privileged position. The example is Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. James is describing here the events of First Kings, and when Elijah was commanded by God to actually pray this and pronounce this judgment on the nation. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Elijah, as great of a prophet as he was, James says, is made of the same stuff we are. That's really what he's saying. He's made of the same stuff we are. And if you follow Elijah's life, you see weakness as well. Remember when he got discouraged because Jezebel was after him? After he killed all the prophets of Baal out on Mount Carmel? 
and he ends up under a broom tree saying, I'm the last prophet, I'm the last faithful one in the whole nation. And God feeds him, and gives him rest, and sends an angel and restores him. But Elijah, the powerful effect of his prayers is not due to his prophet status, but to the fact that he prayed fervently. Elijah was not double-minded in his praying. He was not divided by doubt so that he sat in judgment on God's promise to withhold rain or give rain. To pray fervently, then, isn't to have confidence in prayer itself. It's to have confidence in God's undivided nature. God will do what he said he will do. That's the way we ought to pray. That's fervently here. If you doubt God, if you sit in judgment on God's character when you pray, and does God really mean it? Does God say say he loves me but doesn't really show it? God's... You can't pray fervently. You pray fervently when you know that God is going to hear me. And his answer might not be everything I think it should be, but he's going to hear me, and he can handle it, and he cares for me. He has said it. And I pray and I ask because he's promised, because he has said that he loves me. That's praying fervently. And James is saying that's the way we all ought to pray, each and every one of us. All right, so God is calling us then to be a community that seeks him in prayer, interceding for one another to endure suffering and to fight sin. Let's pray. Lord, we know that you hear us this morning. How could, we, how could we pray even now without these truths ringing in our ears that you hear us? And so we pray fervently. We pray that you, in your grace, would strengthen us to resist the temptations of sin. Lord, that when we stumble, we would get up bound to your grace, trusting in your love for us, what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, and continue to press on to pursue you. Lord, may we pray for one another fervently that those we know are struggling with sin or with illness, that we would intercede faithfully and fervently. Lord, you hear our prayers. And in these days of suffering, whether that be persecution or whether that be illness or great discouragement or anxiety or whatever it may be, Lord, you are the answer to turn to you, to rest in you, to trust in you. That is what you have provided for us, that confidence. And we know, Lord, that you will save us and you will raise us up. In your name we proclaim these things in faith, amen.